Uh, for those that uh, know me, um, you'll know one of uh, my hobbies. Uh, I don't know if I say it's a hobby. Oh, I think it's a hobby. Um, one of the things that I love to do is mow lawns. Now, I know this sounds really unusual, um, but I find mowing a lawn, so for those that don't know what mowing a lawn is, it's cutting the grass in your house, right? You know, some people are like, I don't know what he's talking about. And, you know, and, and that's, that's, you know, that's understandable because, you know, most of us live in apartments or shared accommodation or you still live with your, you know, your parents who mow the lawn. Um, but I've always, I started mowing the lawn when I was about 14. Um, and so I've been mowing the lawn for about 20-something years. And I really enjoy it. Really enjoy it. Um, I know I don't really look like a massive garden kind of a person, but mowing the lawn is uh, definitely fun. Um, and some parts of gardening are fun and some parts are not. Uh, but gardening isn't really, you know, it's not really sort of our generation's thing. Right? Like if, if you go, who's the most keen gardener in our church? Um, it's just a question of who's got the most houseplants or who's got the most succulents. You know, that's as far as we go in terms of, you know, how, how well we are with our green thumbs. But even for us who, who are not very good at gardening, um, can tell the difference between something that is alive and something that is dead. So let me show you a photo, and if you're online, you'll see this photo of what we call a tree, right? But that's not actually a tree, is it? It is, but it's not. And that's actually called a tree stump. So what's missing on top of that tree is the rest of the tree. But what's interesting is if I was to ask you the question, um, you probably couldn't answer the question, is this tree alive or dead, right? Because that's, it's hard to sort of gauge that one. But if I was to ask you the question, is this tree healthy or not? Most people would be able to come to the conclusion that that is not a very healthy tree because there is no tree. It's like going to McDonald's and having a McFeast burger and them not giving you the meat. That's like having the McFeast without the feast, right? It's just bread and salad, right? Um, this is not a lovely tree or a vibrant tree. This is what we call a tree stump. That may be alive, that may not be alive, we don't know, but it's, but it's not much to show. Now, we're in this series in Isaiah, right? And Isaiah, who, who's the prophet of God, is speaking to God's people about what's going on in their lives. And pretty much this tree stump is the image of what Israel is like at the moment when Isaiah is speaking. Whereas once God's people, the Israelites, were a vibrant tree, a vibrant tree full of life, full of fruit, because of their sin, they have been cut down and down and down to now what is just a stump. Israel has rejected God. And because of God's justice, God tells them that they will be punished for their sin. And that punishment comes not just internally, but externally from neighboring nations who come and destroy them. But it's not just the Israelite people. It's the kings of Israel, the leaders of God's people, who should have been leading them back to God. But instead, they rejected God's commandments and instructions and decided to form political and military alliances with neighboring countries like Assyria. 
And the situation that we find Israel in is that they go to Assyria and they partner with Assyria and Assyria comes back to betray Israel and takes over. This is the current state of Israel. They are a tree stump, not knowing even if they are dead or alive. The people of Israel who are now either going to be killed by these enemies or be deported into exile find themselves in a helpless situation, wondering, is there anyone that can help? Is there anyone that cares for them? And this is how we find Israel when we enter our passage in Isaiah chapter 11. And that's where we'll be tonight, in Isaiah chapter 11. Let's start at verse 1. A shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. A shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Isaiah says in verse 1, There is hope. Out of death and destruction, Isaiah speaks of an answer to the call of help. And the answer for the Israelites is what we call the Messiah, the one that saves. And chapter 11 is going to answer three questions for us. It's going to teach us about who the Messiah is. Secondly, it's going to teach us about what the world's going to look like under the rule of the Messiah. And thirdly, it's going to teach us about what life's going to be like for God's people under the rule of the Messiah. So let's ask that first question. What do we learn? What do we know about this Messiah? Right? Oh, sorry. There's another picture of the stump, right? See, that's a real photo. That's amazing. It's amazing that out of a tree stump, new life can be formed. And that's the exact image that Isaiah is giving to us in Isaiah 11. What do we learn about the Messiah? The first thing that we learn is that God will be with him. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. God's spirit will rest with this Messiah. And because of God's spirit, the Messiah will be full of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might and knowledge and will fear the Lord. And this is such a comparison from all the kings of Israel who turned away from God and his spirit and instead were filled with their selfish ways. They did not fear God at all. But we see that God's spirit will be with the Messiah. The second thing that we learn about the Messiah is that he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And we see this in verse 3 to 5. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. What we learn is that the Messiah will not only have the Spirit of God with him, but he himself will delight in the Lord. Unlike human leaders who judge using our five senses, right? The Messiah will judge with righteousness, meaning what is right, and will judge with justice, meaning what is fair. 
We see that the Messiah is also powerful as he strikes the earth and slays the wicked. This is the leader. This is the king that the Israelite people need. One that is fair and just. One that rules with power and might. Isaiah tells the Israelite people who are in this helpless situation, there will be a Messiah. A shoot that comes from the stump. Life that comes out of a near-death situation. And he will be good and just and righteous. He is the shoot that comes out from the stump. Secondly, what we, uh, we ask the question, what will the world look like under the Messiah's rule? Under the rule of the earthly king's life was the worst for the Israelite people who were facing either death nor de- or deportation out of their own homeland. But what would the world look like under the Messiah's rule? When the Messiah comes, what will the world look like? And we see this in verse 6 to 9. And before I read this, you really need to use your imagination. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the the yearling together. And a, a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Underneath the rule and reign of the Messiah, the world is going to look very, very different. Isaiah describes somewhat of a utopian world, a fairy tale kind of world where where wolves and lambs will hang out together, where, where cows will be eating with bears, where young children will play with snakes and there will be no danger, there will be no harm and there will be no fear. It sounds impossible, right? And I think that's the description of what the world will look like underneath the rule of the Messiah, impossible peace, impossible peace, a peace that we cannot even imagine, a peace that we cannot even fathom. It goes beyond our understanding. You know, we talk about world peace all the time, but world peace for us is a figment of our imagination. It's a theory. It's an ideal. But under the rule of the Messiah, this world peace becomes a reality. The world under this Messiah will be one of complete peace and harmony like no one has ever imagined before. Can you imagine everyone getting along? Can you imagine the reality of world peace? What would you see on the news? Not much, right? Verse 9, they will neither harm or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The world underneath the rule of the Messiah will recognize the Creator, will recognize the Creator as who He is and live in harmony underneath His rule. This is what the world would look like underneath this Messiah. Thirdly, What will it be like for the people of God underneath the Messiah's rule? 
verse 10 to 16. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble uh, the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish. Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile towards Ephraim. Verse 14, they will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab. And the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came out of Egypt. What will, the, what will it be like for the people of God? Underneath the Messiah's rule and reign, we see that God will gather the scattered people. God will, will gather his people once again. And he will, he will make a way. He will make a way. I love that verse. You know, his sweeping hand over the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River was one of the major rivers. He will break it into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. Or in Australian terms, anyone can cross over in thongs. Not only will there be peace on earth underneath the Messiah's rule, but there will be peace for God's people. Their enemies will be destroyed and subdued, and God will gather the remnant, the remaining people, and he will give them a resting place. God will make a way out of all the mess that they're in, and they will find peace, a peace that... The world cannot offer a peace that can come only from God. And this will occur under the Messiah's rule. Now go back. This is 2,500 years ago. If you're Israel and you're being oppressed by enemies, your leaders, your kings are being unfaithful to God. People around you are being killed. People around you are on the, the, the edge of being deported. And Isaiah comes with the word of God and says, there will be a Messiah. There will be hope. How much that would change your life? You know, we experience this. In a very small way, when the New South Wales government announced the day you could go and get a haircut. I don't know about you, but my life just felt better knowing that I could go and get a haircut. I could go out to a restaurant and have a meal. I could come back to church and see people. It's amazing. It's amazing what hope can do. The power of hope. See, the thing is, they would have heard this and they would have had that hope and there would have been anticipation for this Messiah. Who is this Messiah? When is this Messiah coming? Now, we have the benefit of having the whole Bible, the whole Scripture. And we know that the Messiah did come and the Messiah did come and save. 
And he did come to rule. And we know that his name is Jesus. About 600 years, 700 years after the prophecies of Isaiah, Jesus turns up on earth, born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus is the shoot that came up from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse's the father of David, King David. Jesus is from the lineage of David. The Spirit of the Lord came to rest on Jesus when he was baptized by John the Baptist. When he came out of the water, he looked up into heaven, the clouds parted, and God spoke, this is my son. And the Spirit, like a dove, came upon him. We know that Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord because it was his father. It was his father. He loved him. They spent time together. We know that Jesus is the perfect judge who doesn't judge out of our five senses, but judges beyond that. Perfect righteousness and perfect justice. Friends, Jesus is the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied. Jesus is the Savior that saved God's people. And that's great news for Israel. But 2,500 years on, what does that mean for us? How, how do we make sense of these prophecies or these passages in the Old Testament to us in our current situation? Let me close with three applications. Number one, we're in the same boat. One of the saddest realities about humanity is that we don't learn. We repeat our mistakes. We make the same ones over and over again. 2,500 years on from the time of Isaiah, we still are messing it up with God. We live in a world where we're turned, the world has turned its back on God. I think one of the realities that we need to accept is as a world, as a, as, as a, as a, as a race, we're not, we're not getting better. Have you noticed this? You talk about advancement in technology. You talk about advancement in science. You talk about globalization, the internet, how everyone's becoming closer. It's amazing what you can do. You know, like my kids, one of the activities was go on Google, uh, not Google Maps, Google Earth, Google Earth. All right, everyone who, who answered that needs to spend some more time outside. Google, <laughs> Google Earth. I mean Google Earth. Um, so one of the activities for the kids is like go on Google Earth and, and look for a, a famous site or look for your friends. You know, and I remember Ben, my, my second son, he goes, yeah, I, you know, I was with my friend and, and then he told me his address and then I went and I saw his house. Like, wow. It's a little bit scary, but wow. It's amazing what you can do. You know, you can order anything from anywhere and get it delivered. It's amazing. You know, um, it, it's so amazing what you can do with technology, with the internet. And, and yet, it's not that we're getting better as a race. Have you noticed this? It's not like, you know, we're, we're laughing more. It's not like we're, we're happier. We're actually sadder. Like, it's funny how advancement in technology is rising at the same pace 
as the advancement of mental health. You know, they did a study. Number one, mental health used to be, um, uh, what was it? Depression. The number one uh, mental health illness was depression. And, and that has now been overtaken by anxiety. And they did a study and they looked at the cases that were reported. And there is, uh, don't quote me on this. This is just something that I heard. And I hope this is correct. You can fact check me later on Google. But someone was saying that there's this point in time where anxiety and depression and mental illness becomes like suddenly a statistic and it starts to rise. And that's the same day that the iPhone was released. It's amazing. Now, I know it sounds really impressive. Once again, I'm about 70% confident that that's true. But you understand what I'm saying. Technology is getting better, but our lives are not. We're not moving towards God. As a, as a race, we're not getting closer to God. It's actually going the other way. It's actually harder now. It's actually harder now to believe in God, even in Australia, than ever before. You know, and we're not, a, we're not an old country. We're only about 200 something years old, right? But it is the hardest time to be a Christian in our society. We're swimming in the mess that we've created. And the problem with the mess that we create is that this river is heading downstream. And this river is heading down to death and destruction. And it's just getting faster. It's getting deeper. We're in the same boat. Why is this important? Because amongst all the darkness in our world that we live in, the shoot of the stump of Jesse, Jesus Christ, is not only the Messiah for the Israelites 2,500 years ago, but is the same Messiah for you and I. Jesus came to heal the sick and save the lost. Too many times when we read stories about what Jesus did, we think, oh, that person needs Jesus. Jesus came and died on the cross for that person. You know, you, you think about your non-Christian friends and you go, Jesus died for you. No, 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 no. Jesus died for you first. He, he died for you too. You know, we, we're, we're the ones that need to be saved. And you know, there are people in the church, outside the church, they, they don't think that they need to be saved. They think that they've got their lives in control, that they can work themselves out. They're, they're living good lives. And they think that, you know, for some people, that they, they think that they can earn their way to heaven. If I live a good life, if I'm generous, if, if I do everything correct, then, then God has to accept me. And let me tell you, that's the same arrogance and the, the same pride that the Israelites had in their heart, that I could do it on my own. I don't need God to save me. I can do it for myself. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. But friends, we need to be humble and we need to humbly approach God and ask him for help. Ask him for salvation. And the best part of it is this. He will. Romans 10, 9, 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. You know, friends, one of, the, one of the greatest misconceptions about Christianity is that we need to do something to earn the favor of God. We need to do something to impress God. Then God will save you. Then God will look after you. Then God will give you eternal life. And I understand why many people think like that. Because most religions, every other religion, that's how it works. You do good, you get good. You live a good life, and, and, and next life you, you'll be a... You know, a butterfly. You know? And if, you, if, you, if you're a crappy butterfly, then you come back as a bug, which is also a butterfly if you think about it. Right? Like, but Christianity is not like that. Christianity is the one faith that says, no, no, we, we can't do good. We are unable to. We, we, we don't have the, uh, the ability to do good. And God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin, not anyone else's sin, for your sin, to save you. Friends, this is for you and me. The Messiah is for you and me. And you need to make that choice. And it's as simple as declaring with your mouth and believing in your heart. Your life, your lifestyle, your behavior will come through. Naturally will come through if that's what you really believe and that's what you declare. We need to be saved. The Messiah is for us. That's the first application. Secondly, we're called to be people of righteousness and truth. In the same way Jesus judges with righteousness and truth, he calls his people to do the same. Jesus calls us to be different. He calls us to live not like the world, not for the things of the world, but live radically different. Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Jesus is not like the earthly kings. They, Jesus is not bound by earthly principles. Jesus is a heavenly king. And so we who are subject or choose to subject ourselves underneath his kingship and his lordship, we need to adopt heavenly principles, kingdom principles that make no sense. You know, there's so many of them. You love your enemies. Who says that? I was reading that in my devotions this week. If someone, if someone slaps you on your left cheek, turn the other cheek and say, hey, you forgot this one. And I sat there and I thought about this. This is insane. Like, I don't, like, don't judge me, but I'm pretty sure that's not what I taught my kids, you know, like when they're at school, right? Hey, if that kid, like, punches you, you know, firstly, have a look at where the teacher is. <laughs> Just joking. That's what Mel said. Jokes, jokes, <laughs> jokes. I think sometimes we underestimate how different heavenly principles 
and worldly principles are. And I think sometimes we get caught up, okay, in this middle gray ground. And we try to think that we can do one foot in the world and, you know, as long as it's kind of seasoned by heaven, then I think it's okay. It's this gray area. But Jesus calls us to a different standard of living. The other, the other big example is tithe, giving of tithes. In the Old Testament, God commanded, not, op, not, not an option, God commanded, give your tithe, give your first fruit, right? Simple, really, to make it really simple, whatever you have, you earn, you're a farmer, the first 10% of your crops, you will give it to God. You will give it to him and then you live with 90% of your income. And that's not do whatever you want. You still got to honor God with that income. But the first 10 goes to God. Now, some of us, we live by that principle now. You know, you can argue whether it's a New Testament principle or not, but it's, you know, it's a very decent guide. It's insane to think, it's insane to think that you would give 10% of your income to God, live off the 90% and be okay. Like we have friends around us. I'm at I'm at an age where a lot of my friends are now homeowners, and you know they're talking about mortgages and multiple mortgages, and you know what's your taxable income, and then what's your borrowing capacity and whatnot, right? And you know what? The number one thing that 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 matters about when you go to the mortgage broker and ask them how much can I borrow is what is your income? What is your income? It's crazy to think that as, as believers, we're, we're, we, we live off 90%. It's insane. I've got non-Christian friends that think it's, it's stupid even. But what's the principle? The principle isn't, hey, here's, here's 10% to you, God. I'm going to just live in 90 and I'm going to be so poor in my 90. No, the principle is this. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to give God with my 10 because I know that 90, even 90, it's going to be more than enough for me because God will provide. That's the heavenly principle. You know how crazy that is when you talk to a non-Christian person? They literally think that you are, you, you like, someone has brainwashed you. The idea that, oh, you know what? I trust in God for my financial security. And they're like, uh-oh, something's wrong. That's how crazy kingdom principles are. That's how crazy heavenly principles are. But the problem is this, Right? We find this, as I said, we, we, we find this middle ground. And we try to justify this middle ground by going, well, you know what, if I give God 5%, ah, you know, that's kind of half of what it is. It's better than 4%. And we try to think that we can live, we can live with both. You know, we, we, we can be a Christian, but we can also sort of, you know, be financially savvy and whatnot. And I'm telling you now, it, you either live for kingdom or you live for the world. There's no middle ground. And I know for a lot of people that are listening to this, that might not sit well with you. But you know what? That's what Scripture says. You either live for the world or you live for God. Four months of lockdown has told me that I don't have time. I don't have time to butter you up and give you some time to consider this and maybe you know next year we can do this. No, no, you need to work this out now. You need to work out what principles and what king you're going to live for. To live by kingdom principles and not worldly principles. We're called to live differently because our Messiah is not from this world. We don't follow a human leader, but a heavenly one. 
And so we should live with heavenly principles. Third application is that we need to find eternal rest. We find eternal rest in our Messiah. Life can get pretty hectic. Lockdown has shown us that life is chaotic. There's so many stories about people, especially those, you know, people who are working from home. The best example is it's like I was sleeping in my office. So difficult to find distinction between work life and home life because you literally like people wake up, brush their teeth, and then the, the, the computer is right there. They finish work and then they just go straight to bed. And they're like, they don't know when work finished. They don't know when work started. And you know what? That's so difficult because you never find rest. You don't know when rest is. You don't know when downtime is. Because even in your bed, you can see your work computer. But can I tell you, you know what's worse than working from home? Homeschool. <sighs> Praise the Lord, kids are going back tomorrow, man. Oh, thank you, New South Wales government. And you know what? Massive shout out to all the school teachers. I know you guys have done such a massive work, you know, to, to really look after our kids during this time. But you know what? From tomorrow, they're all yours. You can have them back. You know, it's really difficult, right? When the kids get sent to school as a parent, you can breathe. You can do your chores. You can have a bit of downtime. You can watch your, you know, your K-dramas, right? But when the kids are at home, can I have a snack? Can I have a snack? Oh, man, I don't know what my kids are going to do tomorrow when they don't get snacks every 10 minutes, you know? Like, it's so hard for the kids, but it's so hard for the parents. And, 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 and you know what it all accumulates to? No rest. No downtime. That's what four and a half months has been like. That's where we are now. Coming out of that. And Jesus says, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Can I tell you, friends, there is no one in this world, there is no one in this world that does not need this rest. And if you think that you do not, you are naive and foolish. There is no one in this world that does not need more rest than they have right now. We live restless lives. That's why some of us struggle to sleep. That's why some of us are dealing with mental illness, depression, anxiety. Our inability to control today, the uncertainty of tomorrow, worries about our future. Our lives are so restless. And Jesus says that he will be the resting place. Our Messiah says that he will be the resting place for his people. In Isaiah 11.10, in the day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, the nation will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Eternal rest in heaven. That rest cannot be found in this world. It can only be found in our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised Messiah who came and died for the sins of man so that man could be saved. You know, I really thought about this passage and I thought about this sermon 
And I was asking myself, what is the question that we need to answer today? And the question is not, was Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the Messiah? The Bible speaks for itself through Genesis to Revelation that it's pretty clear that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who came sent by God to save God's people. But Jesus being the Messiah actually isn't the question. The question that you and I need to ask ourselves today is this. It's not, is Jesus the Messiah? It's, is Jesus your Messiah? Is Jesus your Messiah? Can I tell you, one word change in that question completely changes everything. It's not a question around facts, about who Jesus is, about what Jesus did. You know, for many of us who have grown up in the church, we don't question that at all. It is what it is, right? You've grown up with that. But the question is, is it personally relevant to you? Because I think, sadly, many people, even in the church, they would all agree that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for the sins of man. But if you ask them, is Jesus your Messiah? If you look at their lives, about how they live, how they spend their time, how they spend their finances, how they live, do they live as if Jesus is their Messiah, that they're saved by Jesus? Or do they live their lives no different to any other person in this world? And I think that's the sad reality. I think it's easy for us to say, Jesus, of course Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Of course we believe that. Great. But is Jesus your Messiah? Meaning, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you? And has your life been transformed by the saving grace of Jesus Christ? Is your life different? Because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. I'm not here to argue facts or scripture. I'm here to challenge you. I'm here to ask you the question that I believe God wants you to hear tonight. And God's asking, am I your Lord and Savior? Or is something else? Or is someone else? Is he the source of hope for my future? When you think about the next five years, next 10 years, next 20 years, when you start making plans for the future of your life, let me ask you the question, who do you trust in more? Your finances, your planning, or Jesus? Do you trust that God will look after you, that God's plans for you are, are, are amazing? And do you just cling to him because you know that, that, that you know, he's got this life for you? Or are you an Excel guy, a spreadsheet girl, planned it all out for yourself? Yep, go to church, but I'm going to save this much. I'm going to be at this point. I'm going to live like this. Who are you trusting? Who are you trusting for your future? And if it's not God, it's most likely you. 
You're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your finance. You're trusting in your time. You're trusting in your strength. You're trusting in your experience. And you, you know what? Ultimately, what you're saying? You're saying that I don't need you, God. Think about it. That's what you're saying. I'm going to live my life, God. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to buy my first house. I'm going to take advantage of the first homeowner's grant. You know, I'm going to buy my first house at the age of 25, and then I'm going to buy my second property at 30, and then I'm going to have a portfolio, and then I'm going to buy a property in Brisbane because it's cheaper than Sydney. And then later, I'm going to get married. I'm going to marry to a beautiful girl. You know, and she, she's going to earn an income, and then because we're double income, no kids, we're going to buy three more houses. And then I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to not only work, I'm going to have a side business, a side hustle. And then by the time I'm 40, I'm going to have a million dollars in my superannuation. I'm going to retire and live in that house that I bought in Brisbane at 25. I say this very naturally because I have thought about this. <laughs> I, I would be lying to you if I were to tell you that I'm exempt from this thought. No way. I've got five kids, man. Sometimes I feel like, actually, there are a lot of times where I ask God, God, why do I have five kids? Right? And sometimes it's like, I feel like God's saying, because you need to trust me more. You need to learn to trust me more. You need to trust me with one. You need to trust me with two. You need to trust me with three. Oh, yeah, go, go. Try to raise four by yourself. Go, five, go. Let's keep going. And I think at five, I was like, okay, God, I give up. <laughs> I surrender. It's so easy to fall into the trap of making yourself the saviour and the, the hope of your own future. It's so easy. And I'm just telling you, friends, that's not what God desires. That's not the best life that you can live. Jesus being a Messiah means nothing. Jesus being the Messiah means nothing if if you don't believe that Jesus is your Messiah. Because that's what changes everything. So friends, as we close, let me ask you that question. Is Jesus the same Messiah that was promised in Isaiah 2,500 years ago? The same Jesus that came and died on the cross for your sin and mine? Is he the Messiah or is he your Messiah? Let's pray.